Just to give you a minute of background, I grew up in a home where there was no Bible, no church, no spiritual conversations. My dad was so busy building a business that he would bring his business home to get things done. So I virtually had no relationship with my father. And every young man I've ever dealt with, whether it's a school teacher or as a pastor, who didn't have a relationship with his father, or young ladies who had no relationship with their mother, those people ended up in chaos because they had no one to help them figure out the things of life. So when I became a school teacher and started teaching in a very rough inner city school, in order to get to know the kids, I gave them a sheet and I put questions on it with blanks. And the first question was, my father is. And there were a bunch of other questions, but that's the only one I remember for this reason. Because how many had it blank? It was blank. And I talked to a young man, so I said, why is that blank? He said, I don't know who my father is. And in another case, it was my father is in prison. My father is dead. My father is a drug dealer. My father is a pimp. That's the type of student I was trying to reach. And most of those young men that wrote that in had already failed twice. So you knew they weren't going to finish high school. So your greatest burden was trying to reach one, just one, and that maybe their peers would see that there is hope by the friendship that they might build with one other. And of course in the Bible that's called discipleship, taking everything we know and giving it away to someone else. Well, long story short, six of those young men committed murder before they were 18. And I didn't leave teaching because it was rough. I loved those kids. I wanted to reach them. I was the head basketball coach. I thought I could reach them through basketball, and I only reached one or two. So for that reason, I've always had a burden for teenagers so that you would be so deeply rooted before you hit college, you would know what you believe, why you believe it, and what you're going to do with that belief to make a difference in the world. I know a lot of you, a number of you here sat at my kitchen table, you've done work at my house. And my wife and I, if you ever noticed while you were sitting there, we were just looking at each other, smiling, because we could see the bonding in this youth group, the potential in this youth group. And it reminded my wife and I of the fact that 40 of the young people that we ministered to are now pastors, pastors' wives, missionaries, and missionaries' wives. And a lot of that was due to positive peer pressure. They just kept feeding off each other. 
starting ministry, sometimes in a nursing home. They didn't even ask me. They just went out and did it and started uh, taking tracks into the nursing home where the people, a lot of the people had no one to even talk to them. So when Stephen asked me to do this, I hesitated at first because <laughs> I told him, Stephen, I'm 73 years old. I can't relate to these young people. And he said, oh, yes, you can. Oh, yes, you can. So we'll see what happens <laughs> in the next couple of days. But in this context, even as a layman, because I had summers off as a teacher, uh, the youth pastor at the chapel said, Rory, I'd like for you to just go with me on a mission trip with our teenagers, and I just want you to see what we're doing. I'm trying to get them to have a burden for souls. And so I did that, and I very much enjoyed it. I just kind of watched. And then there was another mission trip, and he said, I'm really seeing how you connect with these teenagers. Would you do a high school Bible study over in an area called Talmadge High School? And I said, sure. So that just got me going. And as we were having conversations, and I would just sit in the youth room and observe, he said, what are you observing so far? I said, well, without a shadow of a doubt, being on two mission trips and just observing, the females are carrying the youth group. All the leadership is female. They're the ones that are really interacting with each other. They're the ones that get together after school and talk about the Lord. And you, we have no male leadership. None. Except one young man. One young man. Because what I like to observe is when the youth, when the youth come into the uh, classroom, who did they gravitate towards? And there was only one young man out of 40 that the young people would gravitate towards. Even the insecure young men, they gravitated towards one young man, and his name was Doug. So I noticed that. So I pulled Doug aside one day, and I said, hey, would you mind me spending time with you every week? I'd like to disciple you because you are a natural leader. But I want God to turn you into a supernatural leader. So we started meeting. We met for three months. The first thing I asked him is, what gets most of your time? And he said, music. I said, okay, what music are you listening to? And it was a satanic group that wore a medal around their neck, which was a picture of commitment to Satan. And I said, do you realize what that is? And explained it to him. And a week later, he burned his rock albums. I didn't tell him to do that. God told him to do that. And he came back to me, and we started meeting, and I started introducing him to some good, solid Christian music that tugged at your heart. So long story short, we did this for three months, and I thought, God, thank you. Thank you so much that at least you've given me one man. All ministries start with reaching one person. And I said, okay, thank you. So I'm getting ready to use him to start a Bible study in his home to reach the people in his neighborhood. And I get a phone call. Doug is in the hospital within an hour of dying, most likely. And I, as a, and at this time, I had just started part-time ministry. And candidly, I said, God, 
what are you doing? Just being honest. Be honest with God when you can't figure things out. At least don't hold it in. Talk and see what His Spirit says to your spirit, assuming you're saved and that Spirit's in you. And sure enough, a couple hours later, he died. And I got a phone call from the dad, and I said, can you tell me what happened? And he said, Doug was having a test tomorrow, and he forgot his book. And he said, Dad, can I use your car to go to school before the custodians lock the school down? I just want to get my book. And his dad said, take my motorcycle. So he took the motorcycle. He picked up a buddy on the way so they could have some fellowship, a guy that now he wanted to reach for the Lord. Coming home, he's coming this way, and the sun is about just a little bit off the horizon. A woman is coming this way, and all she sees is the sun. And she turns left in her driveway. He didn't even get a chance to hit his brakes. He hit the side of the car. He went face first, and he had a helmet on. Went face first, but hit a pine tree right here. And he was dead three hours later. The kid behind him flew over his back and fortunately landed to the left of that same pine tree. Now you can imagine what I'm thinking. I'm not that mature of a Christian. And I'm questioning God. And the things I learned from that point on in my life is that if you can trust God in the most horrible disaster you ever face to that point in time in your life, if you can trust Him in those circumstances, He's going to use you for things you cannot imagine. Because all of us can trust God when He's doing everything we want, you know, answering our prayers, so forth and so on. So what I want to talk about the next three sessions is just the reality of how do we build this relationship with God that keeps growing and growing and growing? And what are the steps of it biblically? So I assume you have some kind of a, a, a booklet with you. But the upside, if you will, of this is they asked me to do Doug's funeral. I'd never done a funeral. So this is my first funeral. And I'm sitting in my office with tears dripping off my chin. What, what do I say? So long story short, I get to the funeral home, and I couldn't believe my eyes. 400 people are lined down the street and around the corner waiting to pay respects to this young man who'd only really lived for the Lord for three months. But people saw it. And most of those people were high school young people. Long story short, calling hours started at 5, and I've done a lot of funerals, and calling hours didn't end till 11 o'clock. Because these teenagers were sobbing, trying to encourage each other. And in this process, to make uh, a long story short, 
The last woman in line was the superintendent of schools. And I did not know her. And so the parents were standing by the casket and I was standing about five feet over here to talk to people after they talked to the parents. And this superintendent in school uh, comes up to me and looks at me and she's just speechless. I said, are you okay? She said, I don't know what these people have, but I have to get it. I said, what do you mean? She said, I came here to encourage these parents who just lost their oldest son, and they're encouraging me. Because I'm religious, but I've just discovered that religion doesn't take you very far when a major tragedy comes. Because they had the character and the love to tell her, we're going to see him again. He knew Jesus better than we did as parents. But we have that confidence. So turn with me this evening to J Joshua chapter 4. And where I'm taking you here uh, this evening is those of you that have, you know, been at church and we've been going through Joshua. What I want to talk about in this first session <clears throat> is what I call stacking stones. When God does something that you absolutely cannot explain, I'm very big into journaling writing down something so I never forget God did this. So in Joshua chapter 4, uh, a lot of you are familiar with this. <clears throat> but beginning in verse, let's begin in verse 5. And a lot of you know the story. They're trying to get over into the promised land. And Joshua, who is Jesus, that's what his name means. He's a picture of Jesus. Said unto them the people, Pass over this river that's flooded before the ark of the Lord, your God, into the midst of Jordan, the promised land, which God had promised them, and take you up every man of you a stone upon his shoulder. A good-sized stone is what that term meant. According unto the number of the tribes of the children of Israel. And there should be a colon in your Bible. And whenever you see a colon, it usually means cause and effect. Something's going to come out of this that's going to keep building an argument or a principle. And then he tells you why. That this may be a sign among you that when your children ask their fathers in time to come, as the children get older, saying, what mean ye thee by these stones? What do these stones mean? Then ye shall answer them that the waters of Jordan were cut off. God stopped that flood. As you know, before the Ark of the Covenant, which is a picture of Jesus Christ, of the Lord, and when it passed over Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off, and these stones shall be a memorial. Don't ever forget this, as the Jews were to always pass things on to their children. Under the children of Israel, forever, forever. So in this context, verse 8, And the children of Israel did so, as Joshua commanded, and took up the twelve stones out of the midst of the Jordan, as the Lord spake unto jo uh, Joshua, as he told him to, according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel, and carried them over with them into the place where they lodged, and laid them there. So God did this miracle, stop this river that was in flood stage, that if you tried to walk across it, you'd be killed. 
an absolute miracle. And God is saying, don't ever forget this. And that's why I keep a journal. Every day I at least write down one thing that God did, answered a prayer, whatever it may be just to remember the things that God is doing. Because by way of introduction, he says, remember, remember, and for us, that God is my personal Alpha and Omega. That's what it states in Revelation chapter 1, verse 8. Alpha is the first letter of the alphabet, and Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. So he's saying from the beginning to the end, God has your back. God will never leave you or forsake you. He will always take care of you in this context. And then look at verse 21. And he spake unto the children of Israel, saying, When your children shall ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What mean these stones? And down to verse 24. The same thing, that all the people of the earth might know the hand of the Lord. And we'll touch on that later. The hand of the Lord is a phrase for when God does something in your life that you absolutely cannot explain. You can't take credit for it. It means the virtual hand of the Lord. That it is mighty, colon, why? That you might fear the Lord your God forever. And we're going to talk about that also later. See, the fear of the Lord in the Bible isn't this cowering away that you're afraid of God. The fear of the Lord means a reverential respect that actually draws you to God. So let's look how this unfolds. If you remember in the book of Exodus, and you guys can go over this with the counselors, we're not going to turn to this passage, but you're familiar with Moses when the Egyptians were being horribly treated, I'm sorry, the Jews, by the Egyptians, having to bake bricks in the heated sun, and they were slaves. And finally God says to Moses, that's enough, so to speak. I want you to go tell Pharaoh, let my people go that they may serve me, that they may worship me. And Moses said, who am I, in so many words, to go talk to Pharaoh? And what am I going to say besides let my people go? And he says, this is all you need to tell Moses. And in your Bible, you will see that when God answers, he says, I am that I am. And it's all capital letters. Because a proper noun in English is always capitalized. But this being all capital letters means I am the only God there is. And I'm going to get you out of this horrible bondage. And it's a picture of us being in bondage to sin until we give our lives to Christ. So, in this context, these horrible conditions, one of the simplest principles throughout the Bible is a faith that can't be tested can't be trusted. God's always testing His gold, is what Peter wrote, and he considers salvation a golden gift, if you will. So in this context, in Psalm 143.8, you can again talk about this later and look it up later, where the, the, the psalmist writes, Bring my soul out of prison that I may praise thy name. The righteous shall compass me about. And I've dealt with a lot of people in counseling, and their prison is not a prison of bars. It's a prison of drugs. It's a prison of pornography. 
It's a prison of being a thief, a liar, whatever it may be. There are different ways Satan can imprison us if we allow him to. And Peter just reminds us, if we cast our cares upon the Lord, he does take care of us. He never leaves us or forsakes us. So let's go back to I am that I am, subtopic one. It means Jehovah, the holy name of God, is the eternal self-existent one. Meaning he doesn't need help from anyone. He's the only God. He's ever-present and he's an ever-living being. Turn with me to Psalm 90 and verse 2 if you would. Psalm 90 and verse 2. He's always there for us, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Psalm 90 in verse 2, context verse 1. And this is one of Moses' prayers in the Bible, who is the man of God or a type of Christ. Lord, all capital letters, Jehovah, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. That's the history. God always takes care of his own people. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hadst formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. So in this context, he's ever-present. He's there for us. He's always speaking, but the question is, are we listening? He's always working. The question is, are we seeing what he's doing? And sometimes that might not be seeing what he's doing in our life, but you see what he's doing in your family life, in your friends' lives, in the life of your youth group, and the way God is shaping it right now. Because in number two, the holy guardian of his children, that's what God is for all generations. Psalm 139, 5 and 6. We're already there. Let's turn there. A little bit to your right. 139, 5 and 6. Context, verse 4. Context, go to verse 1 just to pull it all together. O Lord, all capital letters, the I am that I am, thou hast searched me and known me. We can't hide anything from God. That's part of what the psalmist is saying. You know by downsitting my uprising in verse 2, you know my path, my lying down in verse 3, in verse 4. There's not a word in my tongue, but lo, which means behold, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. And here's the beauty for people who are God's children. Thou hast beset me behind and before, laid thine hand upon me, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. Meaning, I can't figure out this love that just keeps taking care of me. It is high. I cannot attain unto it. I can't each even reach out and grab a hold of the blessings that you're giving me. And I don't know about you, but I've got, had hundreds and hundreds of prayers where God answered them exceeding abundantly above and beyond all that I ask in Ephesians 3.20. When I first came to First Baptist Church in Jackson, my one daughter just happened to buy me a journal. And this was 16 years ago. I journaled every day for 16 years. At the end of December, I go back and read my whole journal from January through December on what God did in that year, so I don't forget. So far, there are 2,648 answers to prayer in 16 years. 
It's not the number that matters. It's how big my God is. Every day, I believe we need to ask ourselves, how big is my God? How big am I allowing Him to be in my own life? Am I answering prayers that are big enough or worthy enough that I can actually see Him doing it because I can't answer that prayer, only He can? That's what effectual, fervent, and righteous praying is in Scripture. I remember when the two pastors that I was working with at the chapel, they came to me one day separately, about two days apart, and I'm sure they were talking with each other. And they said, Rory, you need to pray about going to seminary. I said, why? I said, God's not laid that on my heart. And they said, that's okay. We're not telling you to go. We're asking you to pray. And I said, well, right now, I'm burdened for these young people in the inner city who have no hope at all. I don't feel like I can leave these kids and just abandon them. This is my mission field. And they said, all we're asking you to do is pray. So I prayed. I filled in an application to a seminary just to see what God would do. And four weeks later, my principal approached me. And she said, I need to see you after school. And the first year I taught school, I was not saved. I got saved that summer by total strangers who loved me enough to tell me I was a sinner who needed a savior. And they lovingly approached me with that, because that's the only way you could approach me. Don't try and badger me or argue with me, because I'm not arguing over religion. But they loved me into a listening posture. So the second year I taught, my burden was to share Christ with every single student I had in every class. Because I had to teach English and I had to teach Latin. Both of those I had to teach the false gods of mythology. And I thought, if i got to teach these moronic false gods, I'm at least going to teach them about the real God and about Jesus Christ. Well, long story short, that went on for almost five years. Principal called me into the office and said, uh, I'm going to lose you. And I said, what do you mean? She said, I just found out from the Board of Education you can't mention the name of Jesus anymore in your classroom. And I smiled. <laughs> she said, why are you smiling? I said, I've been praying that God would show me whether he wants me to stay or go to seminary. I don't want to leave, but you just shut the only door that kept me here. So I left teaching. That's how I entered ministry. And I went home and told my wife what my plans were. And she looked at me. And you have to know my wife to understand this. Because she usually smiles when she's talking. She looked at me and said, I just want you to remember one thing. I said, what's that? She said, I married a school teacher, not a pastor. So this is going to be a real adjustment for both of us, and we're just going to have to work through this together. And God has. We've been in ministry 45 years together. But God reminded us, because the other thing she reminded me of, do you realize we have $1,000 in our savings account? And we have a baby and a house payment, and now we're going to take on seminary? She said, how's that going to work? I said, don't ask me. 
But when God paves the path, he paves the way. So let's just see what, what happens. So that brings us to the next statement, letter B. That little phrase, I am, is what is called, in, in the English they used to teach in America, <laughs> a substantive verb. And a substantive verb just means it's all you need. If you have a substantial amount to go to college, you have all you need to go to college. And so when they use that phrase, I am, and we'll, we'll build on this in a moment, God is saying, if you'll follow me and obey the convictions I've given you, I will take care of you every step of the way. I will be all you need. And there are points in life when things happen that the only person we can trust is him. So in this context, God reminds us he's our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. That's in Psalm 46, verse 1. Most of you know that. Remember, be still and know that I am God in Psalm 46.10. And another thing I want to point out to you, and I think some of you know this. In the Bible, there's two different words for know. There's a word that means you know between your earlobes. You acknowledge. That's called head knowledge. And there's another word in the Bible that means I know here. It's called heart knowledge. And in time, as you study your Bible more, you'll begin to use what's called a little Greek interlinear. And you can see that the Greek word for head knowledge is oida. The Greek word for heart knowledge is ginosko. So when the demon-possessed people came up to Jesus and fell at his feet and said, Jesus, Lord, we know who you are, it was the word oida. We acknowledge who you are because those demons were in heaven with Jesus in eternity past. When Lucifer was leading the choir, he got thrown out of heaven and so there were certain angels that followed him. They were thrown to earth and became demons. Yes, there is such a thing as demon-possessed people. It's in the Bible and it was in the West Indies when I did uh, worship, uh, mission work there. There was one witch on the island of St. Kitts that had done some things that no one could explain through her evil, dark magic, and I won't touch that any further. But number three, there's an interesting statement in Proverbs 8.14. Again, you can look at it as counselors if you want to, where he's talking about the whole book of Proverbs is about wisdom. I, my, my middle daughter, Chrissy, she was the only one of our three children that would talk back to my wife, talk back to my wife, and she'd never do it when I was there. But one day I came home early, and she didn't know I was home. And I'm coming up the steps, and I hear her barking at my wife, and I opened the door, and her eyes got that big. <laughs> and I said, young lady, that's my wife you're talking to. You will never, ever, ever speak to her like that again or you will deal with me end of discussion do you understand she's your mother but she's my wife there's a dual responsibility you have and she she liked to read so starting the next saturday for the next 30 weeks i took her out for breakfast and I had her read Proverbs chapter 1, and then we would discuss it at breakfast. Next week, Proverbs 2. She was the type of person, when she saw a verse one time, 
that validated the thing someone was sharing with her, that's all she had to hear. That was it. One time. Okay, that's what the Bible says. That's what I'm doing it. That's what I'm doing. And today, with those same disciplines, she adopted three brothers and turned these three young men who were so abused and foster home scenarios and loved them so much that you wouldn't even know these three kids. And she had to use the same disciplines on these boys that mom had to use on her in order to get her attention. But it just reminds us that if you, and in that Proverbs 8.14, it says, counsel is mine, the wisdom in Proverbs. That's the Holy Spirit, your counselor. Sound wisdom, that is Christ. Christ is wisdom. In 1 Corinthians 1.30, the day that you truly got saved, it says God placed you in Christ. And He became your wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. Means He's taking over your life. If He truly is in your life, He's going to shape your life. And then the last thing is I am understanding, that's God again. So you've got counsel, the Holy Spirit, sound wisdom, Christ, and God. You have the whole Trinity shaping your life proportionate to you not just reading your Bible, but studying it. It's a big difference, meditating on it. And then as God really speaks to your heart and says, you need to really live this, then you memorize it. And then God glues it into your heart. So you have a righteous heart. So letter B, uh, I'm sorry, letter A, foreshadowing Jesus, our wonderful counselor that's in Isaiah 6 and Romans 8. And again, you can look that up later. Jesus, our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption. Every now and then someone will say to me, can you give me a simple explanation of righteousness? Yes. Righteousness is when you believe right, you behave right. If it doesn't affect your behavior, you don't really believe it. So when you read something and say, yeah, I believe that, you need to ask yourself, then am I living that? Am I living it out? Because that's the two-sided coin of the work of the Spirit and the Word. Because the Spirit's always bearing witness with our spirit, our personal spirit, through the Holy Spirit in Romans 8. His Spirit bears witness with our spirit. Every day God should be showing you, yes, you're saved. Yes, because you're living out what you've learned. You have a burden for other people. Your eyes finally are off yourself. And sometimes I've dealt with teenagers that are so miserable. And I said, you know why you're miserable? Is you keep looking in the mirror. And you keep building this misery on yourself. And if you want to get rid of that misery, start serving. Because serving gets your eyes off yourself. In my previous ministry, we had so many people coming to Sunday school. We had Sunday school before the service. And after the service, we had church on Sunday night. So we had children's ministry then. We had church on Wednesday night. We had children's ministry then. My wife ran all four Christian education ministries. Had 250 different adults helping her run those four Christian education ministries. 
But you know what she saw when she saw you young ladies sitting at her table? She said, they remind me of our Christian education ministry because my best workers were my high school young ladies. They loved those children. Sunday morning, before, after, Sunday night, Wednesday night. And when you have a burden, and a beautiful burden for children, God is shaping you for a real future of ministry because of the love that Jesus has for children in Matthew chapter 18. So moving on, number four. So when God the I Am is daily protecting us, why do we fear? Let's turn to Isaiah 41.10. <clears throat> Isaiah 41.10. And you're familiar with this, many of you. You know, when I think about this statement that God is my I am, I am all you need, I write in my Bible sometimes, grip of grace. I'm in the grip of God's hand. Mature Christians, they want to be right in the palm of God's hand. So when God closes that hand over you, you are totally covered. There are Christians I deal with at times that play games with God, as if God is stupid. And they want to live out here on the edge. Get as close as I can to, to falling off the cliff, but trusting that God's going to keep me on the edge. And the only problem is when God closes His hand, you're not in it. Don't ever play those games with God. I've seen guys say, well, you know, I only drink a couple beers. I just drink with my buddies a couple beers. And three years later, the same guy's an alcoholic. Because a couple beers for a while will hold you, and then after a while, a couple beers don't do anything for you. It's got to be three, four, five, ten, two cases, you know, whatever. And then it's got to be whiskey, and the next thing you know, whiskey's not doing, then it's got to be drugs. Satan always has a plan, just one degree at a time. You're, you're no longer aiming straight towards God. He's got one degree over here. And I don't know how many of you go up to Lake Erie, but when you leave the port and you're trying to go out to an island and you set that compass, if you're off one degree and you go out seven miles, you're five miles away from the island. And that's all Satan wants. One degree. Play one little game on with me. One degree, and then next month it'll be two degrees. And he's subtle, and he's called subtle. So moving on. Oh, no, 43.13. We're right there. Turn there with me. Isaiah 43.13. And here it is again. Yea, in terms of God taking care of his people, before the day was, before anything was created, I am he. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. We'll look at that later. I will work... And who shall let it? And let means stop. I mean, it is so obvious when God is working in your life. You don't even have to ask the question. You, you know it. So, number five. Is God our Redeemer, the great I Am, meets our every need in the riches of Christ? When we were in seminary... We came to a point of Thanksgiving, and my wife loves to cook. 
loves to cook for the whole family. You know, get all the parts you can put in the table so the table's covering half this room. Make so much food you couldn't eat it for two months. So everybody takes home, you know, a month worth of food or a week worth of food. So she comes up to me and says, do we have money for all the dressings and all the things and, and a big turkey? And I said, right now we've got a dollar and 89 cents in our checking account. And we're behind five house payments and we're behind five electric bill payments. I've called the companies and told them that the situation I'm in, I don't have a job, I don't have any money in the bank, and, they, and I say, well, what can you do? And they said, as long as you pay this off by six months, we will, will not charge you any additional penalties. So okay, we can live with that, I, I guess. We'll see how this unfolds. So it's now November. We've got this tiny little checking account left, all this money in debt. And she says, okay, if we don't have money to do it, we won't do it. And back in those days, living in green, nobody ever locked their doors. So she ran down to the post office, picked up a few things, got some milk and eggs for the, for the child we had. She comes home, opens the door, and looks, and on the kitchen table is a note, and behind it, three boxes of stuffing, pumpkin, mashed potatoes, everything imaginable in this big box. Says, look in the refrigerator, look in the refrigerator, there's a 10-pound turkey. No one knew we had that conversation but us. To this day, we don't know who did it. And our door was unlocked, they come in, unloaded it, and disappeared. That was the biggest faith builder that got my wife finally over the hump of God does have our backs. No doubt about it, because that was right where her heart was. That's the only thing she asked for in all the time I was in seminary. So Christmas rolls around, and you can guess what happens. <laughs> can we form a, uh, can we, do we have money even for a tree? I said, no. And she didn't even bother asking for the turkey and, and everything else and so forth and so on. And so she just smiled, and we were kind of going on our way. And three days later, no one knows we've had this conversation. I open the back door, and there's a guy standing there with a tree, decorated. And I look at him, he's a guy I played softball with on the church softball team. And he said, do you have some place I can put this? And my wife said, I do, takes care of that. And then he said, well, come with me, Roy. And I went down to the trunk, and the trunk of his car was filled his wife had bought 12 chickens, cooked them and canned them and put them in jars. There was a quarter of a side of beef and he handed me a check with $80 in it. He said, this is the softball team. We don't know if you have needs, but we decided to try and help you with this. Of course, my wife was elated, but we're still behind five house payments five electric payments and have a sixth one coming the end of December. The total amount to the best of my recollection was about $1,420. No one knows this, 
and we got an anonymous check in the mail for $1,500. So from September to the end of December, IM paid every bill and left us a few bucks in the account. And that went on for the next six months as I finished seminary. Every bill we had was paid. I'd go out to the car, there'd be an envelope under the windshield wiper with three $100 bills in it. No writing on it. Somebody would shake my hand at church and I'd never met before in my life, walked away and there'd be three $50 bills in my hand. This happened and by the time we finished seminary, every bill was paid without giving you all the other miracles and we had 10 cents in our checking account. That's called stacking stones. My wife and I will never forget those things and I guarantee you they don't even have to be written in a journal because they're written on our hearts. So in this context, to finish this up, is God our Redeemer, the great I Am, meets our every need in Christ. There are things that contribute to that, that enable that, if you will, because we didn't even ask for these things. We just said, Lord, you promised to meet. We kept praying, I think it's Philippians 4.19. We kept praying, God, would you meet our every need in the riches of Christ? The safest way to pray is to pray Scripture back to God. Just pray Scriptures back to God and say, Lord, this is what you've promised, and I'm just asking you to do it. If it's something we really need as opposed to something we want, because there's a big difference there. So one of the things that I try to do through this process is what I call diligent disciplines. If God's going to bless me, it's because I'm blessing Him with all that I can in light of what I know I can bless Him with. So one of the ways is just forsaking sin. Receiving with meekness His engrafted Word, as James 1.21 states, and it, says, and it says, when we receive this Word with meekness, He engrafts it within us and saves our soul. Well, what does that mean? My soul's already saved if I'm a Christian. Well, our soul is the seed of our feelings, and it means it saves your feelings from seducing your faith. Because that's one of Satan's games. You're saved, but he wants to stir your soul with doubt. And it protects us as we have meekness and we trust God in spite of what seems to be going on. We know we still have a big God. See, I'd love it if God would always do things on my timetable. God, I want you to do this. He does it. No. There are times I say, God, I want you to do this. And I'm praying that over and over and over for five months. And God finally does it in that context. So let her be, as we choose to die to self. You know, Paul made a statement in 1 Corinthians 15, 31. I die daily. There was a precious lady in our church when my wife and I got married. We didn't have any money to even pay for the, for the, wed, the, the little snacky things afterwards, you know, the reception. And this elderly came, lady came forward and she, she knew our need and said, I'll take care of this. And it wasn't much, it was just little pieces of this and that. It was very minimal, but it was something. And this lady came up to me and she said, would you pray for me? I said, why is that? 
She said, my husband's been an alcoholic for 40 years. And you know where we live. We live in a run-down little shack. We have nothing. My kids keep telling me, would you just throw him out? He drinks up all of our food. We're behind in bills. Just throw him out. Just throw him out. He's no good. 40 years of alcoholism. He's not going to change. And she just said, no. When I took wedding vows, it was till death do us part. And I keep my vows to a faithful God who's been faithful to me. I'm going to be faithful to him. Two years later, he broke. I've never seen this. Said, I will never drink again. Well, a guy who's been an alcoholic 40 years just isn't going to go cold turkey and stop. And he did. Never took another drop of booze the rest of his life. He ran all Ohio sporting goods down in downtown Akron. And he was so burdened for how much he wasted in his life, he spent the rest of his life buying shoes and shirts, spikes for the kids in the inner city of Garfield High School in Akron who couldn't afford them. Every penny he had left, he poured it into kids because he felt he'd wasted 40 years of his life. He'd destroyed his own kids, and they were already married and gone. And Canley didn't want anything to do with him. And they waited a couple years to make sure he really was free of the alcoholism because they couldn't stand to believe he was and then have to deal with it again. But he made a decision. The only way I can quit drinking booze is to die to self. It's a totally selfish thing. I'm destroying my marriage. I'm destroying my kids. Now I'm, I'm destroying my grandkids. Like my, my kids don't want even my grandkids to be around me. And finally, letter D. You know, Acts 17, 28, you can look that up later, reminds us, in Him we live and move and have our being. He will always take care of me if I believe he'll take care of me and trust him to take care of me. You know, you, you, sometimes you hear that song, his eye is, on, uh, is upon the sparrow as we trust in his watch care. And again, you can use those verses, uh, look them up later. And to wrap it up, you know, one of the things that uh, Peter wrote, because Peter tended to learn things the hard way. You know, he's the one that when Jesus said, I'm going to the cross, Peter rebuked him. Remember what Jesus had to say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. Peter was doing Satan's work, even though Peter became the main disciple in the book of Acts, who preached a couple sermons and had about 7,000 converts, and Jesus preached for three years and only had 250. So Peter wrote the statement, uh, I will not cease, and no, I can't quote it, I, I, I will not cease to keep you in remembrance of these things, even though you know them. And what Peter was saying is sometimes we need to relearn something. The moment we think, okay, I've got that one, let's move on, and then all of a sudden, a few months later, oops, I guess I didn't get that one, because now I'm back to that sin again. And so there are times in the Bible God says, I want you to relearn something. And I know a lot of you here have grown up in, in church. But the I am statements that Jesus presented when the people kept saying, you're not the Messiah, you're not the Messiah. And finally he broke out in all these statements in John chapter 6, and you're familiar with them, when he said, I am the bread of life. If it's called an emphatic article. 
The bread of life means, remember when that manna came down from heaven? That was me. That was a picture of me that one day this man is going to come down from heaven and feed you on earth. And that was me. I was that manna. As a matter of fact, there's a statement in the Bible. This is that. This manna is Jesus incarnate now. So he was that bread of life. And of course, in the Jewish culture, they loved two things. Fresh bread, but you couldn't have fresh bread without fresh oil. And the fresh oil is the spirit. And the bread is how he feeds you through the word of God. You can look those verses up. And then he said, I am the light of the world. And think Jewish. And in the Jewish culture, it was a black desert. Jews really appreciated light of any kind. And Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And, you know, if you'll walk in me, you will not walk in darkness. Uh, When I got saved, I was living with roommates that were all unsaved because I was unsaved. And, And it dawned on me, I can't stay here. There's alcohol. There's partying. There's immorality. I can't stay living with these guys. So I moved home about two months after I got saved. I was home two days and my dad pulled me aside and my dad and I didn't have very many conversations growing up. He said, what's happened to you? I said, what do you mean what's happened to me? He said, you're a different person. So how am I a different person? He said, well, first of all, you treat your sister like she's a human being. Okay? My sister and I, you know, all the time competing with each other because neither one of us got attention from our parents. So that battle between my mom and dad and having chaos in the home trickles down, you know, to the kids. And I explained to him the gospel. Two weeks later, he went with me to church and got saved. He grew up in an unsaved home. He couldn't teach me anything about morals, ethics, integrity, and character because he had never been taught that. Two days later, my sister came up to me and said, what's happened to you? And I told her I became a Christian. She just smiled. She said, I knew something happened to you. Tell me about it. And she dropped to the floor right there on her knees and received Christ. She's still coming to my house about once every two weeks to talk about the Bible and and questions that she has. And I said to her, how do you know? I mean, how do you know I'm different? She said, because you treat me like a human being. (laughs) And it was kind of embarrassing, but that was the reality of it. I didn't see the changes. That's the point. I didn't see the changes. Because I had nothing to do with them. And see, you can take for granted if you've grown up in a Christian home that you've not had to fight these battles and had to jump into Satan's satanic snake pit and get bit many times and cost you greatly, sometimes friendships and other things. And when Jesus shines the light, the only thing that happens is darkness has to leave. And so the first time I read in Acts 9 where it said the scales fell off of Paul's eyes when he really realized who he was talking to in Jesus, that's what happened to me. I had a whole new outlook on life and what really counted in life, and it wasn't me. I'm the door of the sheep. And why does God call us sheep? Because sheep are dumb and dirty. 
I mean, they, they, they walk right off a cliff. They say one piece of grass down over there and they've eaten. They'll walk right off the cliff and that's why a shepherd always has a, uh, one of those things with a hook on it, whatever it's called, and they pull the sheep back. <laughs> and sometimes in life we're heading down that path and God reaches out that hook of conviction and pulls us back and says, don't take a step further. You don't want to go there. And that's an oversimplification of that verse. Uh, and of course, Jesus, I'm the resurrection and the life. You believe in me. You know, you have eternal life and abundant life forever. And one of the things that I, I, I always go over, I've done a, close to 100 weddings. We'll touch on that later. 93 of the couples are still together. In this day and age, that's all God. And they're all together because of premarital counseling that gave them tools that when you do get married, you follow these biblical standards and you will have a marriage that will never stop growing. My wife and I have been married 48 years and I would have never imagined that you could love somebody more every year for 48 years. It never stops. Why? Because God's love is not only internal when His Spirit enters you, it's eternal. Eternal love never stays stagnant. It's always growing. That's why it's so critical. When you are building relationships with the right people, friendships with the right people, that's the only way you can date the right people. And if you're not dating the right people, and I'll go over this more later, you can't marry the right people. It's that simple. And it starts now at this age and you understanding that. And that's why your friendships in this room are so critical because you need each other. This world has nothing to offer that matters. Nothing. Satan promises everything but gives you nothing. Please believe that and help each other believe that if you see a friend drifting one degree in the wrong direction. Love them enough to tell them the truth. Please. You do need each other. And I'm going to tell you right now, those of you that have grown up in a Christian home your whole life, you're the ones that are most prone to taking it for granted. I've seen it many, many times. I had a young man, I, I took on a mission trip with me, he did a great job, and today he's sitting on death row for killing two men. He was the Craigslist, Craigslist killer a number of years ago where he lured men down to Salt Fork to give him a job, and he killed him. He sat in church for 22 years and became a murderer because it was all up here. It was all between his ears. It was never in his heart. You could never kill someone if Jesus Christ is in your heart. And that one broke my heart because he was also in my class when I was a school teacher. In my youth group. And there's a big difference because when it's in your heart, it changes your life. When it's only in your head, it makes you proud. And pride is never from God. Never. And finally, the way, the truth, and the life, you're familiar with that, the songs you were singing this morning. I am the true vine, God's fruit, as Israel was a false vine, bringing forth nothing but false grapes, wild grapes in Isaiah 5. I want to close with this one thought. It's an illustration. 
the young men that I uh, lived with, four of us all went to the same vacation spot in Delaware. We all heard the gospel. We all saw the love of Jesus from our neighbors who fed five guys with a ravenous appetite every morning and every evening, fed us, and they used that to get to our hearts, hopefully. But out of those five guys, I was the only one that received the Lord. I went back home. Three of those guys lived with me. We're getting ready to go water skiing. So we're sitting around, we're having a bite to eat, and my one roommate has to go to work. And as we're getting ready to get up, he says, Rory, do you have a minute? I said, yeah. He said, you know, I heard what you heard in Rehoboth Beach, Delaware. But it's changed your life. And it's not affected me at all. He said, am I saved? Because I believe what they said. And I said, Terry, you're only saved up here, if at all. But you're at least asking the right questions. He said, well, how do I move it from here to here? And I said, well, it has to be something you're willing to live for, not just to say, I am a Christian. He said, Rory, I, I can't do that. He said, it would cost me too much. I love the partying. I love the immorality. I love this, this, this. And I love those things more than... I'm not willing to give that stuff up. Tears literally were dripping off his chin when he made this statement. I would rather burn in hell than give up my lifestyle. Forty-two years later, last year, he calls me. The Bible is incorruptible seed that never returns void. And if that seed even gets in, he said, Rory, I met a fine Christian lady, and I am a born-again Christian. Forty-two years I don't know any other scenarios like that, but that one. Please don't cling to that scenario. If you have any doubts that you know the Lord and you're sitting here, pray about it and talk to your counselor. This is one thing you don't want to play games with. I love you guys so much. I want you to have the richest, deepest joy that no circumstance of life, that no person can ever take away. And the beautiful part of this is you have a free will. You can make that decision like that. But there's an ugly side of free will. No, thank you, Jesus. It's a choice. And God never forces His hand. Please make the right choice. Father, thank you for being such a gracious, merciful, loving, tender-hearted, forgiving God. You're so real, and you make life real, and you make friendships real. I can't thank you enough for the precious heart sitting here, and the things that you're willing to teach us if we're willing to hear them. So Lord, we can't thank you enough
And we just pray as we go our separate ways tonight that we still hear that still small voice of your spirit. Not the voice of a man standing behind a wooden pulpit, but the voice of the living spirit and his capability of wrapping his arms around our hearts that we might follow you with all of our heart in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for your attentiveness.